Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this 50-year-old show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. I'm your host, and I've spent my entire life just waiting for myself to arrive. <laughs> my co-host is Guy, who asks that you please not comment on his unfortunate eyebrow accident. Hello, <laughs> Guy. Hello, Rob. <laughs> yes, there will be unfortunate eyebrows ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so... Now, it's really unfortunate that we did not get to see the crusade, and I hope someday that they'll do an animated version. Mm -hmm. that, and that was between the last one we did, which was the web planet and this. So, but I have to say then, we have this bizarre experience of going from the web planet, which was half sort of really interesting and half five-year-olds putting on a play <laughs> and is, you know, us finishing it semi-drunk and uh, you know, losing the will to live. <laughs> uh, then you go to this and this is just a whole different experience. It's it, it, I mean, it's like, it's a different for a different audience. I don't know. You know <laughs> we'll mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is, this is uh, a little change of pace from the last one. <laughs> And I, what I will say up front, and I, and you know, I'll try not to um, dig into this until you see the last half, is that definitely the uh, fandom has strong opinions about this story. I'm not going to tell you what those opinions mm. are, and we'll see if you can oh, okay. uh, figure that out. Right. So, with that, let's get into our first episode, which is um once again entitled the same as the story, the Space Museum. Mm. <laughs> I thought it, this was going to be a quick episode for me to take notes from, because the first time I watched it, it seemed like it was full of a bunch of filler. Mm -hmm. But then watching it again today, you know, taking my notes from it, turns out there's a whole lot of stuff in here that's probably worth mentioning. I set you to, to do this episode specifically because I think it's a really interesting episode, and I wanted to see... <laughs> what your thoughts would be. So. Yeah. The second watching, I, I don't know why there was such, because it was just a few days ago that I watched it the first time, but I don't know what really accounts for the change. Maybe it was just having the time to sort of uh, let it all settle in or something. I don't know, but I liked it much more in the second viewing. Anyway, we'll get started with the, uh, the action here. It starts off that the crew is standing around the console in weird outfits from the episodes that are, for now at least, lost to history. And they're, uh, one of them looks almost like, to me it looked almost Chinese, but I guess it could be, you know, it, apparently those episodes were about the Crusades, so unless they met some Chinese traders or something, <laughs> I don't know what it is. No, they did. They did make me want to see the episodes because you know the oh, costumes yeah. are great. And this happened to us the very first Lost story, where they were supposed to be in China. In fact, they also had right. great clothes from that. And we and so yeah, 
Uh, we're we're missing all the stories oh, where they yeah, have great that's clo- right. historical uh, yeah. clothing. Ian Ian shows up uh, in in the subsequent story arc. He's got his happy coat on. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's the same similar deal here. And they're standing around the TARDIS console, and they they're staring silently, and they're completely inert. It looks like they might be unconscious or dazed or something. We get an outside view of the TARDIS. Actually, it hasn't materialized just yet, but we get a view of a a clearing next to a next to a mountain. And in this clearing, so it's in sort of a rocky desert environment, we get various styles and sizes of rocket ships. You know, they could be from all kinds of different cultures, or maybe just all different time periods. And there's a building in there that's a model, of course, but it looks like it might be about the size of a decent-sized house. doesn't look that big, although we'll find out it seems bigger on the inside. <laughs> the TARDIS materializes. It's next to a big rock wall. The crew is still frozen in place, but now they're in 20th century clothes. And they come to their senses, and they seem a bit disoriented. Ian and Barbara are right away startled by this change of clothes, but the doctor seems to just find it amusing. He takes it in stride. <laughs> I like the way Ian puts it. He's like, Doctor, we're in our clothes. <laughs> the doctor says, well, I should hope so. <laughs> it kind of <laughs> brings forward some of that humor we saw from the Romans, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the doctor doesn't seem at all put off by this change of clothes. Apparently, this is just something that happens when you travel in time and space. He says, <laughs> dear boy, it's over and done with. Now let's forget it. <laughs> so Vicky goes to check the closet to see if the previous clothes are in there. Uh, the doctor asks her to bring him a glass of water on her way back. He says, all this fussation about a change of clothes. You know, it's so simple. It's time and relativity, my dear boy. <laughs> I am guessing everything. here, because that fussation was a... You know, Billy slip. <laughs> He's probably supposed yeah, to say it, it's not fussing, a, but it's, I like the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a word I'm familiar with, but I, uh, I'm inclined to uh, make it part of my working vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> so Vicky has checked the wardrobe, and she yells that the clothes are hanging where they should be. And then she goes to get the doctor's glass of water from the food dispenser, which we uh, we haven't seen a whole lot. Uh, we've seen it on a couple other occasions, but it's mm-hmm. sort of a, an under underused prop so far, I think. <laughs> she gets a glass of water and then immediately drops it for no apparent reason. <laughs> it's like she <laughs> just turns to carry it and whoops, there it goes. But. It immediately reforms. It leaps right back into her hand, water and all. It's it's almost like a film being played backward, <laughs> which, of course, is exactly what it is. <laughs> Meanwhile, the rest of the crew is checking out the monitor, and they're considering the, the desert outside and the array of spaceships out there. Um, Ian cleverly deduces from past experience that the doctor wants to go and have a closer <laughs> look. The doctor says the readings indicate that it's safe. Barbara makes a very good point. She says, well, the readings don't always tell us everything, you know. Yeah. Boy, is that true. (laughs) Well, as we always say, you know, 
It, 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 every story would be better off for them anyway, if at this point they just left. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, that would be the prudent course. <laughs> so the doctor, uh, Vicky's returned with the water and the doctor starts drinking it. Uh, he doesn't comment that it's tastes like floor, but, uh, <laughs> Vicky does look apprehensive. He heard the glass drop earlier, but he tells her, don't look so concerned, child. It's quite easily replaced. Hmm? Yeah, we get lots of hoons and such in this episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, lots of hoons. (laughs) Vicky says it won't need to be replaced. She explains what happened to her, and the doctor says that he believes her. And Ian and Barbara also seem to believe her, or at least they seem to be willing to keep an open mind about it. The doctor, looking at the monitor, he concludes that they've arrived at a museum. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know about his logic here. He's just like, look, there's some stuff that's older and some stuff that's newer out there. It must be a museum. <laughs> you know, that also sounds like a junkyard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could be. Although, although the way, I mean, the spaceships are arranged, you know, they're spaced apart like a junkyard. They'd be kind of just you piled <laughs> on top of each other. But yeah, it's. It is, it is a, a quick conclusion, but it's not illogical. Well, and then when he says that, Barbara says, oh, a space museum. <laughs> Got our title, <laughs> but they're all on board. Of course, we're looking at a space museum. <laughs> <laughs> so they all head outside the TARDIS to do their investigating. And this, this I missed on the first uh, viewing, uh, and it's just, uh, it really struck me for some reason. Vicky points out a little pile of, unremarkable rocks and the doctor says well isn't that extraordinary i've never seen erosion in such an advanced <laughs> stage and that's <laughs> well i i i think we could give him another uh, a more advanced example in just a moment here but uh, we'll get to that yep the doctor says the planet seems dead extinct ian says i've always associated extinction with extreme cold and Barbara agrees. So I, I, I have I no think, idea what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, entropy and all that stuff, maybe. Yeah. But but I know entropy could also cause heat. So who knows? Yes. I guess we have the benefit of a half century of science fiction to give us lots of other possible ways at extinction. Right. And, and part of the reason Ian makes the point is that it's they say it's moderate temperature, right? So. How could it, yeah. how could things be extinct? I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So the doctor has a new trick now. He says, as there's always the element of danger in the unknown, I suggest we keep closer together. Is that clear? <laughs> I think he's in the wrong show. <laughs> yeah. That must be a very situational trick there. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sure that means that never again will they say, let's split up. <laughs> Yeah, don't put any money on that one. Ian notes that they're walking on dust that's several inches thick, and this is this is a more advanced stage of erosion, <laughs> I think, than mm. the pile of rocks. But uh, then again, I'm not a scientist, so I could be wrong. <laughs> and Ian says, why aren't we leaving any footprints? And when he says that, there's a, uh orchestral sting of... Then why aren't we leaving any footprints? <laughs> and uh, 
you know, really emphasizes that it's strange that they're leaving, a, not leaving footprints. And the doctor does one of his looks they like where he, where he kind of looks up into the side and the camera is close up on him. And he says something like, yes, that's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, they approach the building without leaving footprints. The front door of the building, we, we've seen the building in model form and, uh, the model was okay, but the close-up is actually a bit different. The door looks a little different. It's still, still rectangular, uh, but now it's, it's actually two sliding doors that come together in the middle. And what was painted patterns on the walls in the model, it turns out on the close-up, it's actually sort of lumpy and it's all constructed of triangles, uh, which probably looked a lot more exotic in the 1960s than it does today because we're used to seeing this look in wireframe models. You know, they're all made up of triangles. Mm. And that's, that's basically what this is. It also kind of reminds me of the game Deus Ex Human Revolution, where the, the triangles were like a design theme of the game. It's a, it's a neat look. They did, they did a good job with it. Mm. And Barbara has noticed something peculiar. When they're not talking, everything is totally silent. There's no, no sounds of wind or anything else. Suddenly the doors to the building, which is, of course, the museum, they slide open and two men in white uniforms are approaching them down a hallway. So the crew hides against the wall outside the door which is likely to be ineffective unless the guards have no peripheral vision at all. But uh, <laughs> we know from past episodes that that is a possibility. Mm. So we'll see what happens. What happens is the guards walk by without noticing. They walk right out the building and right past the four people standing at the entrance. And as soon as they walk past, right away, Vicky sneezes loudly. It's really almost, almost uh, scary. <laughs> kind of a jump scare, but, uh, but the guards still don't notice anything. They continue on their path. So the, the, the plot thickens. <laughs> so they all enter the building and the doctor and Barbara discuss the lack of windows inside. The doctor speculates it's due to something in the atmosphere that is a very slow, destructive property. And he further speculates the interior light may be some fluorescent substance in the walls. And he does have, he does flub the word fluorescent a little bit, but not too terrible. <laughs> yeah. The first part about not having windows, cause there's a slow destructive property. I, I have no idea what that means, but actually I thought it was kind of cool. The idea of, you know, threading your walls with fluorescent material. And you could certainly imagine that being something that we would do at some point here in the near future. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, uh, uh, or LED lights, maybe. Yeah, it's effectively uh, the the equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, they're talking about this place being a museum, and uh, the doctor says, "After all, you have objects of historical interest on Earth, so why not a museum in space?" Hmm? I always thought I'd find one someday. <laughs> so we have this thing called the NASA. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I, I was kind of surprised that he, he hasn't just found brochures to space museums <laughs> by stopping at truck stops or whatnot. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, they uh, walk into another room and the doctor immediately cries, Chesterton. And there's another <laughs> orchestral sting as we see a Dalek. <laughs> Except there's a pedestal next to it with a sign that says Dalek Planet Scarl. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, makes it, as far as I can tell, the one labeled exhibit in the museum. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And, uh, Vicky has read about Daleks, or Daleks, I guess is the proper way to say it. Read about them in the in the history books. They invaded Earth about 300 years ago in her timeline. Ian points out, we were there, Vicky. <laughs> Vicky I'll note says, that apparently a thousand years in the future, they don't have pictures in history books because she has no idea <laughs> what they look like. <laughs> well, you know, they, they do their learning fast, so mm. no time for that, all that frippery. So Vicky says, I mean, the books describe them all right, but well, this one looks quite friendly. <laughs> Anne says, you wouldn't say that, young lady, if ever we meet them again. Which, to say the least, is very unlikely, which uh, <laughs> strikes me as uh, possibly whistling past the graveyard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For better or for worse, the Daleks are coming back for many, many decades. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of figured. <laughs> so more men are approaching now, and they hide behind an exhibit. It looks like an engine. It might even just be like a car engine. I am not an expert on those things, but. Looks like some kind of engine. These men who come in now, they don't have the white uniforms. They have black long sleeve t-shirts. And they have very, very high eyebrows. I mean, their normal eyebrows have probably been covered with pancake makeup or something. I mean, the actors. Uh, well, let me tell you, and, I read about this. So I, think, I believe they actually, their eyebrows had been shaved off. And... Uh, they were sticking these artificial eyebrows on. And one of the problems during this whole story is that the artificial eyebrows kept falling off. <laughs> and, you know, I, I appreciate their attempt to make them look alien, but I'm going to say it's not the most successful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's distinctive. I'll give them that much. You know, what it looks like to me is, uh, you know, like maybe, Drag queens who went out for a smoke break and took their wigs off or something like that. <laughs> well, anyone who's curious about trying this, I will warn you, there is an evolutionary reason for eyebrows. So, you know, <laughs> eyebrows are basically the sweat band for your face. So when huh. you remove them, what happens is sweat on your forehead goes directly down into your eyes. <laughs> so oh. it's a, it's a bad idea to remove them as some people have discovered <laughs> the hard way. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, good to know. I wasn't, uh, wasn't planning on that anytime soon, but that just gives me additional reason not to. So these men in the black t-shirts, they talk briefly and then they move on, but the crew hears nothing. You can see their lips move, but the crew hears nothing. Ian speculates that maybe they talk on a higher frequency. <laughs> and the doctor, the doctor considers it, but he says it's a possibility, but he, he doubts it. If you um, recall, we in, had that whole frequency thing back with Planet of Giants, right? When they were tiny. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were, they were so tiny. Nobody could hear them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, he, he has some experience to base his speculation on, but, uh, the doctor says he doubts it. And, uh, you know, the way he says he doubts it, it suggests that maybe his mind is already working on some other possibilities. So the crew looks further. Vicky, 
uh, and I didn't mention it, but the doctor had specifically instructed her earlier not to touch anything. She had made a remark about museums being places where men follow you around telling you not to touch anything. <laughs> and the doctor made a little joke about it, but uh, it was also serious. You know, like, don't touch anything here. Having gotten this instruction from the doctor, she proceeds to touch an exhibit as soon as he isn't looking. The exhibit is kind of weird. It looks kind of like a like a rack for test tubes or something with maybe a bunch of rubber tubes on it. It, 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 it has like a glass uh, globe on top of it. Yeah, a big glass globe. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you can see it faintly, but it's sort of semi-transparent due to the special effect that they've set up here. But yeah, it's whatever purpose it serves is completely. Beyond my comprehension, but uh, <laughs> she, she wants to touch it. So she tries and her hand goes right through it and it's, it is semi-transparent. So you can see her hand. I don't know if they superimposed the image or they did a yeah. mirror trick or what it was. Yeah, it was just, a, yeah, they just superimposed. Yep. So she's shocked naturally when her hand goes right through it and the doctor starts to scold her for touching it and Barbara stops him and then Ian gives it a try tries touching it, and he gets the same result. Uh, the doctor says, you know, there must be a logical explanation for this somewhere, which <laughs> probably there is. Yeah, One, one thing I case. noticed here is, you know, because of how they were doing the fact where they, you know, were simultaneously filming the device that she was touching in another location and superimposing it on half the screen. So the actors couldn't move past half the screen or... You know, mm. they, it would kind of mess up the effect. So yeah. the weird thing is you have four actors on half the screen. They're all squeezed into a small space. And then when Vicky's trying to move past them afterwards, she's literally like snaking around them with her body because she can't cross <laughs> the halfway <laughs> point in the frame. It's just kind of funny when you, when you're, when you know what's going on and seeing, and, and it's one of those technical things actors mm. on TV and movies have to deal with, right? It's not just a matter of saying your lines and all that. It's like you have certain marks you have to hit and certain marks you can't hit. But when I went and saw the Penn and Teller show live and they came out for their opening part of the TV show they do, you know, they had to redo the opening because at one point Penn walked in an unexpected direction to greet the crowd. And, you know, the cameras mm -hmm. weren't set up to film in that direction. So they had to redo uh, the whole thing because that meant, you know, he walked, walked out of the camera view. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and speaking of hitting your mark, something that came up in the last story arc that I don't think we commented on at the time is there was at least one occasion where um, the doctor had to sort of adjust himself to fit under the hairdryer when it came down. And right. <laughs> I meant to bring that up and it just, you know, passed by me, but uh, <laughs> something to watch for if you ever go back to those episodes. <laughs> we, we don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you got nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly they realize that there are three of the eyebrow guys right behind them. These are the guys in the black long sleeve t-shirts. And so the crew, having nothing better to do, they just stand still in plain sight. I mean, there's nothing to hide behind. So these three guys pass within inches of the crew, walk right by him, without acknowledging their presence in any way. Ian says that they're invisible. The doctor replies, either that or we're not really here, which <laughs> is a counterintuitive notion. Mm -hmm. So at this point, we get a fade out 
And uh, after the fade-in, it seems a little time has passed. They've been exploring the museum for a while. Ian says it's the biggest museum he's ever been in. He says they must have walked for miles. They enter a new room, and they're surprised to find a British police box. And uh, that, of course, is the TARDIS. <laughs> and everyone but the doctor is eager to get out of there. They want to get in the TARDIS and amps gray, which is usually, as we discussed, the best policy. But <laughs> the doctor touches it, and it's immaterial, just like the other exhibit mm. was. Doctor seems to have reached some conclusions, or at least he's working on them. He says, are we here? Hmm? <laughs> then he says, look. And on the other side of the room, there are four display cases containing the four of them. Each is dressed in the clothes that they're wearing now. The doctor says, yes, exhibits in a space museum. <laughs> and I have to say, I don't know if we discussed this while we were recording a podcast or just, you know, after or before it, but that was what I speculated from the title, <laughs> The Space Museum, because you have, it's sort of a trope in science fiction. So, uh, so I'm going to pat myself on the back for calling now. Although it wasn't really a huge leap. <laughs> I will say it's a, it's a, an interesting enough and surprising enough image that my memory of this episode is that this is the episode end, right? You see them as exhibits and then, mm, and then yeah. the episode would end. But that's actually not true. We actually uh, keep going on here. <laughs> yeah, we've got a little little further to go yet. Yeah, and the exhibits, I mean, it is kind of a sinister thing. And I, I'm not sure... You know, I think they do a little uh, fooling the eye here because, at least in my case, I came away thinking that they were in, you know, four-sided transparent cases, you know, with four mm. walls and the roof and all that. But if you look closely, I think they're really just panels of glass or plexiglass in front of them, and you sort of assume the other walls of the cases. Right. Yeah, that could um, make sense. It would, it would certainly be one of those time savers for the production crew, right? So. Yeah, yeah. But it looks convincing anyway. Uh, so it's uh, it's good. It's it's creepy. <laughs> so Vicky draws on her futuristic education. And she <laughs> says, time is a dimension that also has dimensions of its own. So they're viewing <laughs> all this from a different dimension. <laughs> and, you know, some of the, on the first viewing, I thought, some of this uh, time and dimension speak was kind of, I don't know. It, I, I still think it's kind of implausible, but I mean, that's what the show is. You just got to, you know, swallow it and go with it sometimes. <laughs> so Barbara asks the $64,000 question, is there any way of getting out of this? The doctor says, well, my dear, I suppose we got into it. There must be. <laughs> it seems... It seems logical at first until you think about it. <laughs> you got into it, therefore there must be a way out of it. Yep. He says, I think the TARDIS jumped a time track and ended up here in this fourth dimension. <laughs> so, you know, not exactly the technical term, I don't think. But, Every uh, time I see yeah. this, though, what it, what it makes me think of is a... Um, an old-fashioned record, right? It's the needle on it and jumping tracks, and I think that's probably what they're trying to mm. reference there. That, yeah, that's that's probably you're you're probably. I was I was thinking of a train jumping the track, but I think you're probably more. I think the record vinyl record is what they were going for. Yeah, good call. 
So the doctor goes on to say, I think you're all going to be delighted. I'm going to come up with the answer. And it's so simple. <laughs> he says, all we have to do is wait here until we arrive. <laughs> he continues, uh, what we are doing now is taking a glimpse into the future, or what might be or could be the future. So the his allowance for what might or could be the future, um, it, it's... It seems to confirm that the doctor has changed his stance on the malleability of history since their trip to the Mayans, because back then he insisted they could do nothing to yeah. change things. And then I think in su subsequent episodes, we've seen him modify that view somewhat. Well, it's, it's kind of gone right. back and forth depending on the story, but certainly as we'll see in a moment, <laughs> he's totally happy to change the future now, which of course the future is also somebody else's past, so he's changing the past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Vicky proposes finding the real TARDIS and just bugging out, but the doctor thinks that this would just end up <laughs> with them in the display cases. He's, he thinks they need to actively prevent this from happening. So I guess fate only works if you don't work against it or something well, like that. Well, but the, to, in their <laughs> defense, they do end up having a discussion where they realize that they don't really know what actions will result in them being in the display cases. So, yeah. Know, in a way, you could say this is also the doctor making an excuse once again to just stick around and check things out <laughs> rather than leaving. Cause yeah. it's quite possible that sticking around is what would ended up with them. In fact, I'm going to argue logically that sticking around is more likely to end up with them in the cases yeah. than trying to leave. <laughs> yeah. You would, you would think that being in the place where the, the cases are is <laughs> uh, more dangerous, but oh, well, <laughs> what the hell let's roll with it. Ian asks, Doctor, when will we arrive? And the doctor isn't <laughs> sure, but he says they're, wear, they're all wearing the same clothes now as they are in the cases, so it can't be too long now. Barbara says uh, she can feel something strange happening. And we get a brief photo montage uh, with some music that's both whimsical yet suspenseful. You know, we see them standing at the TARDIS console in their uh, outfits from the previous episodes, receive the glass breaking on the floor. Then we, we get some live action. Uh, we see those two white uniformed guards that we'd seen earlier. They're checking out the TARDIS and they're pointing at the ground and we see the crew's footprints suddenly materialize in the sand where previously mm -hmm. there had been none. And the display cases and the frozen people inside them, they vanish as the crew is watching. And they're all briefly a little bit disoriented again, just as they were at the beginning of the episode. And Barbara says, they've gone. And the doctor says, yes, my dear, and we've arrived. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. But before we move on, I wanted to point out, um, just for the interest of anybody who might find this time arrival stuff fascinating. There's a fun Stephen King story. I think it's part of a larger collection. It's called The Langoliers. I haven't read it for years. I've probably read it at least two or three times, but it's been a while now. It's a fun story. Uh, it's got his favorite trope, the angry right-wing guy who makes everyone miserable. <laughs> 
and the time disturbance in that story is very similar to uh, what we've seen, at least in this episode. Now, I don't know how the remaining, or well, the, I know how the next episode will go. I don't know about the last two. Right. But it's it's very, the time disturbance thing where they're waiting for the time to catch up with them uh, or waiting for themselves to catch up, whichever way you look at it. It's, it's confusing. <laughs> uh, it's very similar to that story in this episode. And uh, plus that story has some uh, giant Pac-Man time janitors. So <laughs> it's a fun story all around, worth checking out. Yeah, one thing I want to say at this point, just talking about this episode, you know, we'll evaluate the full story when we get through all of them. For me, uh, and I, I want to say this because, you know, we spend a lot of time making fun of little little things in the episode. For me, this mm -hmm. is one of the best opening episodes of Doctor Who ever. I mean, I really think that it is really intriguing. Like, you know, the, there are things they don't explain uh, and really kind of never explain, like that glass falling and coming back. We never really understood why that happened, but it just tells us that thing, weird things are happening with time and then mm -hmm. them finding themselves as museum exhibits and everything. I think, it, and, and also I, I actually really like the closing line with the doctor saying, we've arrived, you know, that's a pretty yeah, dramatic, uh, close. So I really like, uh, this episode as a start to a story. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I like it too. I, I, if I had only watched it the one time, I'd, I think I would have said, uh, yeah, yeah, they had a few interesting things, kind of a dud overall, but on rewatching it, I don't know what the discrepancy is, but, but mm. the second time I watched it just a couple of days later, it, it was much more interesting to me. So maybe I'm growing up. <laughs> okay. And next up will be the second episode, the dimensions of time. So after our recap in which the crew has finally arrived, we now switch to a room with some white clothed space bureaucrats doing bureaucratic things. One of them has repaired a piece of machinery and says it should go another hundred years. The class had rotted off. And the other guy says, like everything on this planet, you know, with disgust. <laughs> and he proceeds to complain about how he has 2,000 Xeron days left to go before he can go home. <laughs> 2,000, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. The implication we get right from the beginning here is that clearly this museum doesn't really have many visitors and it's falling apart. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, great, we're going to get another tax hike to support a museum that no one wants to go to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I didn't notice that until right now, when they say the clasps had rotted off and the guy says like everything on this planet, that could be a deliberate callback to what the doctor had said earlier about the lack mm. of windows, meaning there's some slow degradation that is endemic <laughs> to the planet. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I guess we'll have to see if the story gives us an explanation in the future for why. Because <laughs> at the times we complained about, right, he was like, oh, these rocks have more erosion than I've ever seen. <laughs> like, what What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, have you been to a moon recently? Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, what? who knows? Maybe the story will provide an answer for why, why this entire planet is falling apart this way. <laughs> So now another, uh, you know, white clad bureaucrat rushes in and the head guy who will find out is the governor of the planet complains that as governor, 
you know, his door should be knocked on before the guy rushes in. But the guy says it's an important, an alien ship has landed. So the governor calls for a search party. Now, I guess actually one of the interesting things here is in terms of the whole time thing, and, you, and especially in the early Doctor Who seasons, uh, actually really until modern Doctor Who when they brought it back, they often, they didn't really explore time stuff that often. I think in part because they felt like there's only so many things you can do and it would get boring. And this is hmm. maybe the first episode to really play around with, well, what would it mean if you had time travel, right? Hmm. So they debate whether this spaceship would be from what they call the local rebels, the children. Um, and we switched to the local rebels and these are basically kids, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, 15 or 20 or something. They're all wearing black yeah, yeah. and we saw them earlier when we couldn't hear them talking. And here's where you really notice their eyebrows <laughs> and <laughs> they tell us they're fighting the Morocks. So those, um, bureaucratic guys are apparently the Morocks and it's a little inescapable that HG Wells had the more locks and these are the more rocks. So I kind of assume they took this. Yeah, from that. that, that occurred to me also when I was watching it. So, uh, I'm guessing if we both thought it, then we're probably, <laughs> probably not too far from correct. <laughs> right. And, uh, the kids are waiting for someone who hasn't arrived who's named Tor and Tor then shows up and tells them about the mysterious spaceship. And they debate whether aliens would be helpful or might be enemies, but at minimum, they might have weapons they could grab, so they decide they should find them. We then switch to the crew, and Ian, uh, the the women are lifting up the museum case, which in any museum I've been in would cause an alarm to go off. <laughs> <doesn't occur. laughs> and Ian takes a weapon out of the display case. Not because they expect it to work, yeah. but he figures maybe they could use it to bluff their way out. So it's kind of an intimidating looking rifle. And I, I have to say Ian's firearm discipline is absolutely atrocious. <laughs> oh yeah. He just waves that I thing mean, all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, they discuss that if they try simply leaving the museum, they might just be doing what led them to the display case. That's the whole, of course, the whole thing we talked about earlier. Um, but of course, if they stay, maybe they'll be screwing themselves. In the process of this, Vicky notices that Ian has lost a button on his coat. And the doctor suddenly gets very interested in this. Oh, you lost a button. Which is kind of amusing because remember at the beginning of the first episode, their entire clothes have been swapped out and the doctor's not interested at all. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then Ian loses one button and suddenly he's very interested. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's more interested in the, the trees than the forest, I guess. Yeah. And then, and I have no idea where this was going. I'll put a clip in here. The doctor starts going to this store to explain why he cares about the button. The doctor starts going to this story about developing steam and how he met James Watt. Mm. You've lost a button. Hmm? Oh, so I have. Lost a button. Hmm. That's interesting. Yes, it's very interesting. Hmm. Doctor, why do you always show the greatest interest in the least important things, eh? The least important things sometimes, my dear boy, lead to the greatest discoveries. Like steam, for instance, coming out of a kettle. Yes. I was with him at the time. Uh, see now, where is what was that fellow's name? Um, James Watt. Hmm? And just, it goes nowhere. I have no idea what yeah. the story was for. Yeah, I don't recall if I saw any point to it. Uh, I think it might just have been an opportunity for him to name drop. Yeah. 
But the doctor decides they should indeed leave and go back to the TARDIS, which if he decided that last episode, maybe they would have had a chance to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) But the problem is, you know, because they sort of arrived while they were already in the middle of the museum, none of them are sure how they got here. They have vague memories and they all have different memories of what directions they took. While they're trying to figure this out, the rebels spot them and decide to kidnap one of them and see what's up. So when everyone else walks off, they grab the doctor and pull him into a room. And then the doctor pretends to be knocked out. Yep. They, uh, they use a technique we've seen in, uh, well, the keys of Marinus comes to mind where (laughs) they, uh, they wait for him to stand right in front of a door and get separated from everybody else. And then the door just slides open and there he goes. (laughs) At least, you know. Here, at least someone's pulling him in where in the keys of Marinus, it relied on you leaning back against the thing. And then, <laughs> so that's some progress, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so the doctor's on the floor pretending to be knocked out and they decide they can leave one guy to guard him and the rest will, will leave. And now the crew has noticed that the doctor is gone and they spent several minutes <laughs> debating what to do before they finally decide to continue on. And the rebels come back into the room where they left the guy and the doctor. And it turns out that, uh, the guy is now on the floor all tied up. So uh, the doctor was remarkably spry and managed to take out this guy who is, you know, a quarter of his age <laughs> and uh, tie him up in no time at all. <laughs> yeah. It would have, would have been nice to have that scene in the show, but, uh, right. No. Yeah. I remember in the Romans <laughs> when he, he did lots of fighting. So, yeah. <laughs> And the doctor is gone, so they leave the room, <laughs> and it turns out that the doctor was in the room all along. This was, we, we weren't shown this earlier. This is actually the room with the Dalek exhibit in it, and the doctor had <laughs> hidden himself inside the Dalek. And he pops open <laughs> the lid, and he is very amused with himself, and we get all sorts of hee-hee-ha-ha, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'll put a quote oh, in yeah. That was cute. <laughs> But it's all for naught, because as soon as he leaves, he manages to get himself caught by the the white-clad bureaucrats, the Morocks. Yep, he literally steps outside the door to the room, and they're (laughs) patrolling the hallway. (laughs) Meanwhile, the crew realizes they're lost, and Ian does his bizarre thing. He leaps on Barbara and rips off her sweater. <laughs> and in, while he's doing so, he's ranting about the Minotaur. <laughs> it's like it's like he's gone crazy or something, you know. And it, it turns out that he thought of the Minotaur in the maze, and he wants to use Barbara's sweater to unthread it so they can track where they've been. It's like, well, you know. It would have been polite to wait 30 more seconds and explain that and ask Barbara for her sweater. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes when inspiration seizes you, you just have to act right now before you, before you lose it. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely non-consensual sweater usage. But, uh, after he does, after he rips it off of her and is, is literally like trying with his teeth and everything to pull it apart, he, he decides to ask Barbara if it's okay. And she agrees. Although she does complain that it's a nice cardigan. Yeah. And, uh, she then asks him for a pen knife and, you know, splits it up a bit and they start unthreading it. And what we see in the very next shot is that the rebels have found the thread trail and start following it. So that's one of the downsides (laughs) of this. 
Meanwhile, we switch to a room where the doctor is imprisoned in a chair and he's being interrogated by Lobos. So Lobos is that governor we saw, you know, he's simultaneously mm -hmm. governor of the planet. And our impression is there's probably nothing on this planet except this museum. So it's kind of the, it's kind of a big name for, you know, the guy who runs the museum. Yeah. There must be enough culture here to have rebels, but, uh. Yeah, it's not clear. Are there are there? But he even says they when they used to have there? he he says they used to be swarmed with visitors and they were all coming in rockets, you know, from other locations. So yeah, I have no idea how rebels got here. <laughs> that works, but <laughs> and I oh, maybe maybe we should point out too. Um, I don't think we've mentioned this that these guys who are in charge they have a distinctive look of their own, whereas the rebels have the high eyebrows. Um, the guys in white, they have, um, very pronounced pompadours. widow's peaks. <laughs> yeah. Pompadours yeah. and, and, and widow's peaks, you yeah. know, kind of like a uh, grandpa Munster, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the little triangles coming down on the forehead. Yeah. Uh, but they all seem to have that same look to them. Yeah. There is a very unsubtle, you know, these guys are white, the rebels are black, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. in, in costume at least. Uh, the doctor points out what we've noticed, which is people don't seem to be interested in coming to this museum. <laughs> Lobos is offended and says they used to have lots and lots of visitors. But he says, um, <laughs> and this, I, I find this complaint interesting. He complains that we no longer do galactic conquest and society is now lazy and resting on its laurels and not interested in coming to a museum like this. And I'm like, you know what? I think a society that's not out conquering the galaxy and just kind of minding its own business, not a bad deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, less opportunities to get into trouble that way. If nothing else. <laughs> and uh, so Lobos is interrogating the doctor about the crew, and he refuses, the doctor refuses to answer. But it turns out it doesn't matter because with the press of a button, <laughs> their machines are able to pick up the info from him. And normally you would expect like, you know, when the guy presses the button, maybe there'd be some electricity or some writhing around or something, but no, he just presses the button. Doctor has no reaction at all. And then Lobos shows him a TV, little portable TV with an image of the crew on it and says, it's a simple matter of thought selection. So when he'd asked the doctor about the crew, the doctor thought of the crew and he essentially took a picture of what was in his mind. And then he tells his folks, okay, you know, there's two women and a guy and they're in this hallway, go get them. Lobos then asks him how he got here. <laughs> this, this is particularly hilarious given our podcast. The TV then shows a picture of a penny farthing bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which of course is a big part of the prisoner. Yeah. So the, so the connection between the two shows is now confirmed. I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it kind of shows that once the doctor knew that his thoughts were being captured, he could screw with it. And he proceeds to do so multiple times. <laughs> Meanwhile, the crew has reached the end of their string, so to speak, <laughs> and they're not sure what to do. And they then enter a room. We can't see what's up, but we hear lots of people talking. And Vicky says, they've got the TARDIS. And meanwhile, the doctor continues to screw with Lobos. Like every time Lobos asks him a question, you know, some weird picture shows up on the TV <laughs> that isn't helpful. And, and I, I should say, it seemed to me the doctor was being unnecessarily obtuse. I mean, a lot of the stuff Lobos was asking, I'm, I couldn't really see the harm in just giving him a straight answer. It was like the doctor was just <laughs> determined to be uh, a pain in the side. 
Yeah, and it might have been helpful to him to string Lobos along a bit because once Lobos gets frustrated, he tells the guards to take the doctor to pre- to the preparation room so he can become an exhibit. <laughs> and that's the end so, of the episode. Yeah. And so far, the doctor has acted in a way to guide him towards the cases instead of away from them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's how time works, you know. So, um, <laughs> so let me do the halfway check-in with you, given these first two episodes. Uh, and and I, as you've already said, you kind of changed your mind about the first episode, at least when you saw mm-hmm. it a second time. Uh, how do you feel about uh, where the story is headed? Uh, yeah, it's it's fun so far. I uh, I'm I'm getting into it pretty well. I like it. Yeah, the next two episodes, they'll be the deciding factor. So far, my <laughs> uh, I would say my inclination is quite favorable. <laughs> okay, well, it's a good start, so. The third episode, The Search. Well, we start off in the governor's office, Governor Labas. The doctor, his conversation with the governor has not gone well. <laughs> and the guards are gathering up the doctor to take him to the preparation room, which is essentially an embalming room. Yeah. We see outside the museum, the TARDIS is sitting there by the, you know, initially we saw it as a rock wall, but now it looks like a wall that's been painted to look like those triangles that are on the outside of the museum building. Mm-hmm. There are rebels sniffing around it, you know, the guys in the black shirts. And interestingly, the guard doesn't react much to him. He just uh, says, leave it alone, you know, in a, in a rather bored <laughs> voice. So we get the idea where well, there was some ambiguity in the past two episodes about who these rebels are. But this suggests to us that uh, maybe these guys are just the planet's locals. And uh, Yeah, I, I think they are. The they yeah, they talk oh, yeah. about that, but I was surprised too. I mean, I I was figuring, you know, they would be immediately get into a fight with them or something, assuming they were rebels. But yeah, the problem is, in terms of the story, we never see anybody who is one of the locals who's not a rebel, right? So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a somewhat distorted view of them. Also, apparently a very small planet because their beef is <laughs> that this space museum has been installed and has taken over the planet. And it's like, okay, we have a lot of museums in this country. And they don't, <laughs> you know, they don't take over the planet. So I'm not quite sure how that works. <laughs> well, we will, uh, we'll find later the rebels do have a little more to complain about. And that comes later in this episode. So we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> So they're sniffing around the TARDIS, and Ian, Barbara, and Vicky are all in the museum. They're watching this little interaction with the guard. They're watching through a door that's cracked open. And outside, the governor's assistant shows up, and he chases off the locals. And he's, a, I, I don't know, I get a kick out of this actor for some reason. He, he, he's just, uh, he doesn't really get a chance to do very much except complain and order people around. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, a definition of middle management. Yeah. I don't think we ever find out his name, you know? Yeah. I can't, I can't recall it. I didn't notice it in this episode at any rate. So he, uh, he chases off the locals and then he complains to the soldiers who remain about the governor making him a scapegoat for everything that goes wrong. Then the governor shows up. He's not happy that the TARDIS is still locked and they can't get into it. 
So, of course, the assistant turns right around and does the exact same thing he was just <laughs> complaining about. He, uh, he passes the buck. He yells at a guard for not bringing cutting equipment. He says he asked him to bring it several times, which uh, is pretty obviously a lie. You know, he's yep. just trying to <laughs> cover for himself. And Governor Lobos says, I'm supposed to have at my command trained soldiers, not a feeble bunch of half-witted amateurs. So he, On the other uh, hand, you're running a museum. I mean, what quality of soldiers do you think they're going to send to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so while uh, Ian, Barbara, and Vicky are watching from their little room, a guard just wanders into it. He doesn't seem to be really even looking for anything, probably just patrolling. <laughs> but there they are. He tries to capture them, holds a gun on them and all the standard stuff. And now there's an interesting little interlude where probably for a full minute or so, uh, <laughs> Ian and Barbara just stand there and argue about the nature of changing the future, <laughs> you know, what, how that works and what's implied and all that stuff, Are, while, while yeah. the guard is holding a gun on and, them. And if you think this to be, you know, because their constant debate here is, are we doing the things that are going to result in us becoming an exhibit? And if yeah. you think that they're done with this discussion, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll, uh, I, I think the, uh, the president's press secretary would say that they will circle back to it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, after they've had a good long chat about the future, the guard who's holding a gun on them says, that's enough talking. <laughs> Ian tries a tries an interesting strategy here. He asks the guard about his orders. He says there was nothing about killing us, was there? You probably haven't played it, but uh, but I have. Uh, in Far Cry Four, that's pretty much how the game starts off. Pagan men ordered his guards to stop the bus, but instead they shot the bus. And uh, <laughs> he's very emphatic about how uh, carefully he chooses his words, and it doesn't end up well for the guard who <laughs> shot the bus. <laughs> so he's distracting the guard, Ian is, and uh, while the guard's confused, Ian starts grappling with him. He tells Barbara and Vicky to run, which they do. The group of bad guys that was standing around the TARDIS, the other guards and whatnot, they come in through the door that the group was just watching through. They were watching through the crack in the door. This door opens up, and so Barbara and Vicky run the opposite direction, deeper into the museum. Most of the guards go to search the museum, search for them, but two of them stay back and fight with Ian, and uh, he manages to knock them both out. So, good for him. Then we see a little storeroom. Barbara gets into it, and this is a... A shadowy room. Uh, it's got some crates in it, and it's also got what could be mannequins or they could be embalmed aliens that are just standing around, not in cases or anything. Yeah, I, I think they were supposed to be embalmed people, but the, the person who's closest to the camera and she kind of interacts with is clearly an actual human, and I thought this was going to go somewhere, and it didn't. But, yeah, I, I think... Uh, hmm. I think literally these were embalmed people who were just off in a storeroom somewhere and, you know, not actually in a case anymore or yeah. hadn't been put in a case yet or something. <laughs> yeah, they're just, just not interesting enough to be on display. But and there's uh, actually a, um, there's like some people have written articles, and I think there's a book about this, that in the art world, 
it's actually true that there's almost this fraud where the majority of important art is like this. It's actually stored in a basement somewhere, you know, and there are all these grants to these museums and they have tons of money and, and a large percentage of what they have is not viewable by the public and, you know, is, is just in a basement and, and, you know, oh, there, there's yeah. this kind of, uh, controversy about, Hey, if the public has paid through taxes and everything, all this money, and you're just putting something in a basement somewhere, is that right? You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I've heard about various museums that just have huge, huge amounts of storage compared to, uh, what they actually have on display. And, you know, I mean, a museum only has so much floor space, so that's right. you know, partially understandable, especially since some museums, you know, the British Museum or the Smithsonian, they've been around centuries. So <laughs> they, they, they're going to build up some, some good stuff over time. And I think some museums are actually trying to, like, digitize their stock and, and put it right. online so it's browsable. But uh, I'm sure there's a lot more progress that can be made on there. In any event, Barbara uh, hears some voices coming, uh, and she hide b hides behind a tall crate, and uh, a guard enters. He looks around, not very hard. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he does a little perfunctory looking, finds nothing, and he moves on. He closes the door behind him, though, and Barbara's now locked in, uh, and she struggles with a little. And, uh... Uh, interesting thing, maybe just interesting to me, but in this scene, when she's struggling with the door, her hair is really messed up and <laughs> yeah. we don't see that a lot in this show. Her hair is almost yeah. always perfect, no matter what she's been through. But yeah, I noticed that too. Up. It's funny. <laughs> Elsewhere in the museum, meanwhile, Vicky falls prey to the old grabbed from behind through a doorway trick. <laughs> which we've already seen in an earlier episode of this story arc, uh, mm. with the doctor getting nabbed. Again, it's the friendly rebels who are employing this trick. They explain to Vicky, uh, who is at first very skeptical, uh, they explain that they hate the Morocks and they want to see them dead, which is a pretty, pretty strong statement. Yep. Uh, so eventually Vicky does seem to be convinced that they could be okay. <laughs> well, what I think is interesting here is very quickly, you know, th there's, there's this story thing. I mean, most, we probably talked about it before, most recently with Avatar and there was a man called Horace, right? Where you have a native group and the white guy comes in and becomes the most native of any native ever. Right. And most recently actually <laughs> was the Boba Fett series on Disney did this. Mm. And Vicky is a little bit like this. She comes in and she becomes the most rebel rebellion <laughs> person ever. Right? Pretty quickly, she's like criticizing them for not being rebellious enough. You know? Oh yeah, she's a very viva la revolution type, <laughs> yeah. of, type of gal. All of a sudden, <laughs> so the leader sends one of one of the rebels to go look for Barbara in the storeroom. She figures that's where she must have gone uh, when they split up. Back outside at the TARDIS, Governor Lobos orders that his people should leave the building and watch the exits. He figures if none of if none of the Morocks are in the building, then anybody who exits must be a bad guy, which is pretty sound reasoning, I think. Mm -hmm. So he leaves a lone guard with the TARDIS, and Ian was hiding behind the TARDIS. So he, he throws a rock to distract the guard, uh, which is another far cry <laughs> element they've brought to the show here. 
Now, you said earlier I hadn't played one, but, I, you know, we played through one or two of those together. I thought we played four. Yeah, we Maybe we played yeah. we played five, the one in Montana. Uh, okay. I don't think we ever did four, but that does have co-op, so that could be an option. <laughs> Ian grabs the guard's gun while he's distracted, and he questions him. The guard reveals the doctor was taken to the preparation room, and the guard is understandably reluctant to bring Ian there. He says, we'll both be killed. Then we see the governor's office. The governor has received a message from the home office. It's chiding him. It says, letting the locals, the Xerons, letting them live was a mistake. And the governor makes an interesting remark here. He says, they're almost men and dangerous. And what he's referring to is the, the, the Xerons who still live on the planet are all adolescents, uh, which means, of course, that they're loaded up with hormones and they're always getting up to trouble. <laughs> yeah, every rebel we see is probably, you know, somewhere between 16 and 18. And there's no yeah. women, there's no older men. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it could very well, well, yeah, as time goes by, we'll, we'll find out whether or not it was a mistake to let them live. <laughs> The governor gives an order on the intercom system. He says, in one hour, the air is to be replaced with Zafra gas. And uh, we, we learn that Zafra gas has a paralyzing effect. Back in the storeroom, Barbara's still in there. She's still wrestling with the locked door uh, with no success. We fade out very briefly, and we see that Barbara's on the floor now. Uh, she's taking a little nap, slumped up against one of the crates. And the door opens. In her position, she's not immediately noticeable. Uh, Barbara isn't. So the intruder passes by without noticing. Yeah, we we have the Doctor Who invisibility thing where you can walk by someone who's two inches away from you <laughs> and not see them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is a dark storeroom, so there's that. <laughs> he passes by. She picks up a stick. It's hard to tell just exactly what the stick is. I mean, it could be super light wood, or it could be as strong as an axe handle. I think this is probably one of those <laughs> things where it really is light wood, but it's, for story purposes, it's supposed to be strong. Yeah, it's just a squared <laughs> little piece of wood. It would, you know, it would bounce yeah. off of the guy. <laughs> <laughs> and she's all ready to strike the intruder from behind, but he says, Barbara, are you in here? And at that, she reconsiders. She says, who are you? How do you know my name? And then the scene switches uh, to outside, uh, again by the TARDIS. Two rebels come out of the museum with Vicky. The leader says it's too dangerous uh, to search for her companions, but Daco, who's searching for Barbara and who probably is the guy that she nearly brained just a moment ago, <laughs> he's going to bring her to the hideout uh, as soon as he can. Back in the storeroom... Deco explains the conflict with the Morrocks. Uh, he says their planet is three light years away. They took over the Xerons' planet easily because the Xerons had planned for peace and the Morrocks had planned for war. They suddenly see what looks like thick smoke coming into the room, and the Xeron, uh, Daco, he thinks the Morrocks have set the museum on fire, but this is actually the Zafra gas that we were promised earlier. Yeah, and it's it's impressive again for a museum that they would have thought it had to. Oh, we should be able to flood the museum with a uh, a gas that will knock people out. Yes, 
<laughs> yeah, it's 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 a good idea as long as you got your own people out. Why not? <laughs> Barbara suggested they put something over their mouths, you know, little pieces of cloth. <laughs> then we see the rebel hideout, and they're sort of continuing the exposition that we began in this past scene with Barbara and Dekel. Uh, one of the Xerons explains that they are a slave race, and when they get older, they're shipped to other planets, which explains why this planet, all the rebels on it are young adolescent men. Mm. Now, they they have the Morocks outnumbered on this planet, but they're also unarmed, so that's the problem there. They They can't really confront all these Morocks with guns. Uh, the other Xeron in the room, he's convinced that Barbara, Barbara and her rescuer must have been captured by now. Vicky finally gets fed up with all their hemming and hawing, and she decides they all need weapons. As you said, <laughs> yes. she's the she's the vanguard of the revolution now. Yeah, she's all for <laughs> lots of people getting shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Xerons say they have ma occasionally managed to take a ray gun. But when they do, the Morocks take hostages until the guns are turned. The discussion continues on to reveal that the Xerons know where the Morock armory is. But the trick is it's guarded by an electronic brain programmed to ask <laughs> questions. And it can detect the truth, too. It's like a lie detector. Vicky wants to see it, though. And uh, surprisingly, the Xerons don't really argue much. They're just sort of like, all right, let's check it out. <laughs> So they are all going that way. Outside, meanwhile, the guard that Ian has uh, has taken hostage, more or less, he's reluctant to go inside the museum. And Ian, Ian hears someone coming, so he hides behind a wall and tells the guard to get some information. The governor's assistant approaches. He's not happy that the soldier isn't directly guarding the TARDIS, but the soldier says that the governor summoned him. So the assistant tells him, you better go see the governor, and he'll find a replacement for the guard. And the assistant lets slip that the Zaffir gas is going to flush out the aliens in the museum. <laughs> now, at the armory, there's a little entrance room to the armory that has a computer in it, and also has a guard. But the rebels sub subdue the guard easily enough. There are light beams in front of the door to the armory, and when when those beams are broken, that triggers the security questions. So Vicky has the rebels try it. It asks the first question, the computer asks, and then she has an idea. Vicky tells the re rebels to reset the light beams, which begins the questions anew, and the, they listen to all the questions. The computer doesn't wait long for an answer. It asks a question, waits a few yeah, it seconds. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, computers worked differently back then, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole sequence of questions is um, rather bureaucratic. Yeah, it starts <laughs> off asking for your rank, then your name. Do you have the governor's permission? Do you have a signed requisition? What's the requisition reference number? What's your unit? What's the purpose you need it for? Did the guard examine your ID? And finally, what's the current password? It would take you so like 20 minutes to get into this room. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, kind of a little maze you got to work your way through. 
Vicky has a has an interesting alternative idea though, and she opens a panel on the side of the computer that's asking the questions. And of course now we switch to a different scene, leaving us in suspense. We see Lobos is Lo, Lobos's office, the governor's <laughs> office. A guard on the intercom reports there's no sign of the aliens yet. Lobos says, keep watching, they'll be out soon. He's in his office, which is in the museum, so I'm, they, they must have some kind of sophisticated gating mechanisms to keep the gas out of his office. But, uh, well, you know, you, you would want to set it up so that you didn't have the gas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you definitely want that. You know, they, they must have some very sophisticated ventilation control. I think it's like, you know, maybe their problem is, you know, if you've ever been in one of these big museums and they start saying in one hour, the museum's going to close, you know, in 45 minutes, mm -hmm. the museum's going to close. And they got to get, you know, everybody out of this huge museum and they got to make sure nobody's in any of the bathrooms or anything. So maybe oh, yeah. these guys came up with a better solution, which is let's just knock out anybody who's left. That would be a good real life solution. Yep. <laughs> so back in a, this isn't, Barbara has gotten out of the storeroom now and, and Daco, who's her rescuer. They've gotten out of there, but they're in another room in the museum and it's full of gas. They're both making their way through the gas, he succumbs to it and falls on the floor. And right after that, while Barbara tries to help him out, she too succumbs and sprawls out on the floor. Back at the armory, uh, Vicky is fiddling with stuff in the, in the computer, and she triggers the questions again. Now there are only two questions. One is, what's her name? Which she answers Vicky, truthfully. And the second is, what's her purpose? Yeah, the purpose she needs the guns for. And she replies, revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and they get in without a problem, which is, I think, a, a valuable lesson for computer scientists of today. You know, if you, uh, if you let somebody open the panel on the side of your computer, all they have to do is flip a few bits and yep. all your precious security measures are for it. <laughs> so be careful. And Vicky takes just a moment here to say, I wonder if this will keep us out of the cases. Just sort of musing to herself. But it's worth, it's worth remembering this particular question because you could make a case, well, uh, pun unintended, <laughs> you could make an argument for the idea that it is Vicky's helping the rebels that actually does keep them out of the cases. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything because it is Doctor Who, so we know that they're all going <laughs> to survive some way or another. <laughs> yeah, otherwise we would have 50 years of shows with them in a <laughs> museum In case. the cases. <laughs> I, I could probably think of some ways to make that an interesting show, but uh, we'll leave that as an exercise for yeah. the listeners, I guess. <laughs> Anyway, she says she wonders if this will keep us out of the cases, and this may indeed be the uh, the moment that sort of pivots everything. Back in Governor Lobos's office, Ian enters with the guard uh, who he's been pushing around, and uh, he is initially holding the gun behind his back. But then when the governor starts uh, giving him some grief, Ian produces the gun then. And Lobos, the Governor Lobos, says that the doctor's already in the second stage of preparation. He tells Ian, he's beyond your help. But nonetheless, Ian is going to 
forced the governor and the guard to go to the preparation room. They entered that room, and we just get a look at Ian's face. He looks surprised, and he says, Doctor. And that's the end <laughs> of the episode. Yeah, and this is an unusual cliffhanger, because usually with a cliffhanger, we would get, like, some shock image of the doctor, right, in some bizarre right. situation or whatever, and then we... But we're just seeing Ian seeing something... And we're supposed to kind of get horror from that and then we end the episode. Yeah. yeah. A little different. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Next up, our final episode, the final phase. <laughs> so now we see what Ian was seeing, and it's the doctor standing up against a panel or kind of laying back against a panel with his eyes closed. He, is he asleep? Is he a zombie? You know, hard to tell. But Lobos tells us that he's as good as dead. And Ian, who, as we'll see, especially in this episode, is just really uh, taking the aggressive role. <laughs> he threatens mm -hmm. Lobos to be shot, you know, if he doesn't bring the doctor back to life, which is usually what a bad guy says, right? You know, like they'll have, they'll bring in some doctor and say, if you don't cure this person, we're going to shoot you. Well, Ian is saying this. So, okay. I think, I think Lobos also mentioned something about how he's had his temperature dropped down to hundreds of degrees below zero. And, uh, and, and between that, and they had also described this process as being like embalming, which of course mm -hmm. makes me think of formaldehyde being mm -hmm. circulated all through the body. So, I mean, it's, it seems, seems like a difficult process to reverse <laughs> to me, but, uh, and, and in fact, Lobo says no one has ever attempted to reverse the process. <laughs> Ian <laughs> tells me he's going to do it, and he says, no tricks. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Lobo says, there are no tricks in science, only facts. <laughs> <laughs> I will leave that to the listener to process. <laughs> now we switch to the Rebels and Vicky, and they're all arming themselves. <laughs> just like Ian just threatened to kill somebody. And Vicky is now delightfully helping a bunch of people get armed so they can go shoot people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they're going off to the barracks to fight. And Vicky and Tor are the last ones. And Vicky tells Tor she's going back to the museum. And they argue about whether she should do that or not. And Tor says, well, the gun you're holding is going to give you away. So she gives him back the gun. And Tor sends a guy who's been standing off camera. So everyone else left. These two have been alone. And all of a sudden, it turns out there was this guy two inches off camera <laughs> named Sita, <laughs> and Tor sends him to go with her. Yeah, and he gives her a gun back too. So yeah, that's it's changed hands. But I'm going to say Sita might as well be wearing a red shirt at this point, right? We've never heard of him before. He suddenly has a name, and he's going to go, you know, guard Vicky. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So the Morocks show up at the TARDIS and they now have this whole drill mechanism and they start drilling out the lock. And this was a little odd to me, but, you know, the head guard dude who I think we said, you know, never really had a name shows up and he wants to know where the relief guard for the area went. And he stops them from drilling, takes two of the guys with him and tells the remaining guy to be on watch. And so they, they have to stop drilling. I'm like, wait, they were doing something useful, you know, right? They were <laughs> trying to drill into the TARDIS, and he suddenly stops them, and it just, I, 
it didn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> that way. Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly what the reason was, but it seems like he had some grander plan in motion. Well, but it just seemed like to... he was concerned that the guy who was supposed to be on guard there was gone. And I think that's the guy that Ian took. But I just don't understand why that would be so important that you would stop them from getting into the TARDIS. You know? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they were supposed to go watch an exit for people leaving the museum or something. But yeah, and, and if I remember correctly, unless they have the magic doodad that lets them get past the 21 tumblers in the right. rock or some <laughs> such thing, I don't I don't yeah, that's that's changed from episode to episode. So our story to story, <laughs> so it just depends. Yeah, but overall, the lore is yeah, you're not going to be able to get into the TARDIS if you don't want to. But they don't. I mean, actually, it would have been interesting if they'd shown like when they started drilling the lock. You know, if if the TARDIS had responded or they'd gotten shocked or or something like that. But nothing like that happens. Yeah. And we're back with Ian and the doctor, and Lobo says that the doctor's body temperature has been reached. And the doctor starts moaning and then he wakes up and he's weak and has Ian support him and sit him down. And at first he seems to be kind of out of it. He says he just had an attack of rheumatism. It always happens to me when I'm cold. So it feels like he doesn't really understand what happened, but in a couple minutes, we're going to find out that's not true. Yeah. And meanwhile, <laughs> well, Ian and the doctor are talking, Lobos makes a plan with the other dude he, he has to rush them. And, and it turns out his plan consists of saying now, and the other guy rushes forward to Ian, who then just raises his gun. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really not a great <laughs> attempt. Uh, uh, he, he just, he, he runs like, you know, three yards over to Ian and then <laughs> just stopped in his tracks. Well, I gave it the old college try. <laughs> right. And I felt like this could be a callback to the Romans. Remember when they were on the ship and, and Ian had this whole plan for how they were going to take on the guy who was in charge of the people doing the rowing. And it was the same thing. Oh, right? like, yeah. Now, you know? <laughs> so they, they just haven't learned that maybe your plans need a little bit more uh, sophistication. <laughs> And then the doctor reveals with relish that even while frozen, he knew everything that was happening. And he says, my brain was working with the speed of a mechanical computer. <laughs> I'm going to say maybe he should have said digital because I think a mechanical computer is not all that fast, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> this also could suggest that either the doctor isn't human, which we, we found out already that he isn't from the earth. You know, he's, he's some right. kind he's of human-like He's got the two, -like two hearts and, you know, yeah. Actually, um, I have we ever discovered he has two hearts yet? I don't anyway. think we've found yeah, out about later. any hearts. We did have, uh, Susan told us about the freaky sunsets on her right. uh, home right. world. Yeah, um, I think two hearts comes later. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's uh, if if he was if he was thinking uh, when he was literally frozen, then he's he's got some definite biological differences from <laughs> ordinary garden variety people. And we have this funny sequence here where Lobo says, "Well, your brain could very easily have been affected," and the doctor just goes off on him. <laughs> and then, yeah, this. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say this. This is a, a sound clip you should probably put in here. <laughs> yeah. My brain was working with the speed of a mechanical computer. I was asking myself questions, and the answers were arriving 
with remarkable alacrity. Yes, yes. I must confess I didn't enjoy the refrigeration, hence this attack of rheumatism. But thanks to you, my dear boy, I'm now de-iced and I think I'm quite capable of facing up to the climate once more. I wouldn't be too sure of that, Doctor. Of course, I have no proof. But your brain could very easily have been affected. The best thing for you, Governor Lobos, is to put you in there, hmm? Then you will have all the proof you needed. <laughs> but you think yourself lucky. My conscience won't allow me to do that. Hmm. It's a pity, isn't it? Hmm. It's a pity. <laughs> and then, just like Ian has been aggressive, the doctor is very aggressive, and he says they should put Lobos through the same process, but the doctor's conscience won't allow it. And then we get this classic doctor, you know, whom thing. It's a pity. Hmm? It's a pity. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it seems to me, and maybe I was just, maybe I was just reading into it, but uh, it, it was, it was not quite, but, but approaching the border of, uh, you know, one of, uh, McGowan's little things where, where he, his voice just suddenly shoots up an octave, you know, like <laughs> I can see, it's a pity, it's a pity. <laughs> he didn't quite, quite go all the way, but he was sort of reaching in that direction, I thought. Right. <laughs> and then the Ian and the doctor have the stories, you know, I don't know, 15th debate about whether they're doing what's going to end up with them in the display cases. <laughs> and, you know, I think that debate is a perfectly good one, but they just keep having it over and over and they never make a decision. And, you know, I, I would argue just decide you're just going to do whatever you're going to do because you don't have any way to know. So stop, you know, stop going on and on about how you don't know if, if this is going to be what's resulting in you becoming, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, less hand-wringing, more action. Yeah. <laughs> and at one point, I think it was earlier, Ian said, well, we can't possibly make a decision unless we know every factor going into it. I'm like, well, that's what's that's what making a decision is about, right? Like, <laughs> you must make a decision without knowing every single factor <laughs> that's going into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now other Morlocks sneak up behind Ian and the doctor and they knock out Ian. And I'll tell you, this is one of those stories where, you know, we already have the trope of people getting pulled into doors. Well, this story is a trope of people are standing in a room facing in one direction and other people come up behind them <laughs> and take them over. And it happens <laughs> over and over again. Nobody yeah. ever has anyone looking in the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> so Lobos uh, now gets to go back to his command center and he finds that the barracks aren't responding, but he is told by his people that the other aliens are going to be captured in a bit. And he eagerly lets the doctor and Ian know they'll soon be together with their friends, perhaps for centuries. So, you know, there's some ways you could kind of sympathize with this guy, but he's clearly pretty bad when he's totally happy to, you know, just embalm yeah, people, innocent people. <laughs> yeah, he, he says that with a certain uh, bloating demeanor, I think. <laughs> yeah. Then we see Barbara and that rebel with her emerging from a building, fleeing the smoke, and they get caught by a guard, which is exactly what was supposed to happen, right? They'd be, they would mm -hmm. flee the building, and the guards are posted around. And then Sita and Vicky come up from behind again, you know, <laughs> and Sita shoots the guard. And Vicky's not bothered at all by the guard just having been killed. And she tells Barbara, everything's going to be all right. I know it is. And here we get her really, you know, she's really gone over to one side, right? When the revolution succeeds, Tor and the rebels are going to destroy this museum and all the exhibits. We can't be put in a museum that doesn't exist anymore, can we? <laughs> I just, you know, 
her, you know, within five minutes again, she's become a huge revolutionary. <laughs> yeah. Although her, her logic is pretty good here. I think, uh, yeah, the that's museum's true. all busted up. Man. <laughs> and now we have another sneaking up from behind, so, you know, the head guard and another guard, they show up behind and shoot Sita. So now Sita's dead. Vicky is crushed by the death of this person that she knew for two minutes, but at least this time there's an acknowledgement that somebody just got killed. <laughs> for the most part in this story, people get killed left and right. And we just, you know, pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although I, I should say it isn't clear that the guns are always lethal because there are a couple people that seem to survive the, uh, the shots. And also a couple times we get the effect, the same negative effect that we see when the the Daleks use their mm. weapons, which are, you know, the first, first shots a stun, second shots mm -hmm. kill. So, so there could be maybe marginally less death than it first appears. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're back to governor Lobos and he has found now that not only aren't the barracks responding, but the armory isn't responding. So he's catching on that. Maybe there's some problems <laughs> and. <laughs> Also, you know, they captured Vicky and she had a gun from the weapon store. So that again implies that maybe, maybe they've got some problems. Yeah. And we're back to Ian and the doctor in the preservation room. Ian just really goes off on the preservation device. First of all, I have to question bad guys because there's just this whole history of bad guys, like putting all the people they're trying to control in one room together not tied, you know, their hands aren't tied or anything. There's no cameras. There's no guards observing them. You know? And in this case, not only that, it's not like they're in a cell or something. They're actually in the room with the preservation device and all that stuff. So yeah. Ian goes insane on the preservation device and destroys it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of a low-key insane, though, because he pulls one small box off the side of it <laughs> yeah. and stomps on it. Yeah. But, you know, it's always a good strategy to put all your prisoners in one room with no constraints, <laughs> no cameras, no guards. It reminds me of uh, the series 24, if you ever watch that. They would. I never did. They would, no. Yeah, it's a fun series. I only watched two or three seasons of it. But, you know, they would do that all the time. Oh, we're just going to put you in this room with no observation. <laughs> all right. And, and now, and I'm not kidding, they now have like the 16th debate about whether they're being forced to follow their fate or whether they're, you know, whether they're going doing things that are going to get them turned into a display case. <laughs> and meanwhile, the rebels chase down some Morlocks and kill them. And it turns out this is an epic battle. This is the big fight. So they're running along, killing lots of Morlocks. And Governor Lobos realizes he's in trouble. And so again, showing, wow, you can't be sympathetic with this guy. He orders the crew to be killed immediately. <laughs> but it's too late. The rebels show up and shoot all the bad guys. And <laughs> just this weird tone. Amid all this death and destruction, the doctor is all giggly. Hmm, hmm, the future doesn't appear too bad after all, does it? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now the rebels are in control. And they immediately start dismantling the museum so they can have their planet back. So it's whatever reason what <laughs> museum was taking control of the entire planet. Now, and I'm going to say, this is just out of nowhere. The doctor brings out some little doodad and says it was malfunctioning. And that was the source of the problem that put them on the wrong 
time track. He doesn't name it, you know, they might've used the fluid link again, but they don't bother. It's just, here's this little thing. And this was our problem. It's like, okay. You yeah. Know? It was a, it was like a little white cylinder, like a cigarette butt or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it was the source of their problem though. So problem <laughs> solved. And, uh, Vicky is off to the side with tour having a kind of, you know, intense conversation with him and doctor goes to talk to her. And I got to say, this feels to me very much like the Susan thing. Like Vicky is so mm. into tour and so into the revolution. It totally feels like she's about to leave and join them. <laughs> yeah. Susan style. Yeah. It uh, did have a little yeah. bit of that, uh, that vibe. Yeah. Yep. And that doesn't happen. And then we again have this weird thing where Ian comes out of the TARDIS and asks the doctor what the rather large thing he's put in the TARDIS is. <laughs> and the doctor says Tor allowed him to take it as a souvenir and turns out to be a time and space visualizer. Now we don't get to see this and the doctor refuses to tell Ian and company what a time and space visualizer is. Then the crew enters the TARDIS, it takes off and we get, now normally, you know, the TARDIS would take off and the episode would be over. Mm -hmm. But we now have this very unusual digression where we get a bunch of shots of space paintings, <laughs> you know, all of space and then a planet, et cetera. And then we get a real surprise. This is like a, you know, Marvel post credits kind of thing <laughs> where <laughs> we have a, we suddenly see a Dalek watching some readouts and it turns out the Daleks are in their own time machine and they're tracking the TARDIS. And that's uh, the end of the episode. Yeah. So Doctor Who fandom has some pretty strong feelings about this story. But before I tell you anything about that, uh, I want to get your take on the story as a whole. What What are your feelings about how this went? <laughs> uh, I'd say it was fun. Not one of the all-time greats. Um, I would uh, I'd say it's... Hmm. It was worth, it, I'd say worth watching, but I wouldn't make it a priority. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's got its moments, but, uh, overall there, there's a, there's a, a lot of filler in it, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're not called kind of worth watching. <laughs> um, well, here's, okay. So let me give you a little background here. You know, a lot of the fan feeling about this. And I at least agree with this first part is that the first episode was like brilliant, right? And and mm -hmm. remember they have these the weird time stuff and the glass coming back together and seeing themselves in the display case and it was like really setting up an interesting situation and mystery and yeah. you know, and a real time travel kind of thing. And and then and then for a lot of people the rest of it is is pretty bad, right? So it's for many people mm -hmm. it's seen as one brilliant opening episode and then three bad episodes. Mm -hmm. Watching it now, my feeling is, and you know, I've seen it once or twice before. I really do like the first episode, and I really do think the first episode was setting up something really interesting. The rest doesn't pay it off. I mean, other than them constantly debating about whether what they're doing is going to lead <laughs> to them being in a display case, which is not interesting and doesn't, you know, enhance the story in any way. The rest of it just has nothing to do with the first episode. And the rest of it, I would just say, is just there. It's not bad. There's no bad actors. There's no, 
you know, really silly stuff. It's not like uh, William Hartnell is messing up his lines or mm-hmm. anything like that. But there's just nothing interesting. So it was the second Doctor. We'll see. What became famous as a, as a template is they have what are called base under siege stories, which is kind of similar to this, where, you know, you have typically with a base under siege story, you typically have some kind of alien force trying to take over a base and the TARDIS shows up and the crew helps out. And, and the thing on those is often the person in charge of the base would have some interesting personality quirks, right? The, the, that you were following along with or something. But here, hmm. Lobos, the governor, is not interesting. There's nothing, he doesn't have some personality. There's nothing to bring you along. The rebels, mm-hmm. I mean, they're little kids and that's fine, but there's, you know, <laughs> even though they keep calling the, talking to this tour guy, again, there's no interesting personality there. There's nothing to bring you along. So, so there's nothing yeah. really bad, but also there's nothing to kind of say, oh, this, you know, like, Obviously, one of our favorites with the Aztecs, where the bad guy really yeah, stood out, right? Yeah. yeah, there's just nothing like that in this story after the first episode. Just nothing to to really latch on to. That, so that yeah. would be my argument. And that's, you know, yeah. And it, it is kind of a pity because both Governor Labas and his assistant, they're both the actors who play them are, they look like interesting actors. I mean, mm-hmm. given given the right writing to work with, they could really, uh, have fun with it, I think, but they really didn't get much more than, than standard issue villain boilerplate in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then they, you know, and maybe part of their fault is they didn't bring something to it. Right. I mean, you know, the, it is mm-hmm. up to the actor to some degree. One of the things I noticed, for example, in this, and, and this might be a problem with the director is that. When, let's say, some of the Morlocks would be standing around having a conversation, I noticed that the whoever wasn't talking, the other actors would just stare at him blankly until he was done, and then they would deliver their line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a good actor is thinking, okay, what am I hearing? How am I reacting to it? Et cetera. Mm-hmm. They're not just standing there waiting for their next line right and so right there is just this kind of yeah that's just kind of the feel of the whole thing so i mean i would argue i think the first episode is worth watching but the story as a whole it's just there it's not bad it's not good it's just there and and so i would probably skip it although i definitely think it's it's worth watching that first episode and if they Mm -hmm. had followed up on the the intrigue of the time elements of the first episode it would have been really interesting but they just didn't there's nothing about time in the whole rest of the story yeah you know i mean you can imagine for example what if they occasionally started seeing a different outcome right um of of their actions in some way like you know seeing that they were changing the future but maybe each time they changed the future it still wasn't helping them right until they They got to the end. There's different things you could do because the first episode is saying, oh, this is a big time conundrum, but, but it's not, they just don't follow up on it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think in, in the fourth episode, I think there's one thing we may have overlooked, which is among all those uh, innumerable discussions that they had about (laughs) the future in one of the last ones, I think it was the doctor who said something about what if it isn't something we have to do ourselves what if it was the interactions we had with other people that might end up getting us out of this and that which 
Which is exactly what ends up happening because they befriended the rebels and Vicky mm -hmm. went out of her way to assist the revolution and all that. And that, that was what ended up changing the, the whole game. So there, there was, among all those discussions, there was a little hint of something that actually points to a possible reason why things did change. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of, a lot of unnecessary chit chat in, in the show <laughs> overall. Yeah. So, and again, normally we try to talk about the actors and everything, but you know, none of the non-regular crew stands out cause they just weren't given anything to stand out with mm -hmm. either on the rebels or the Morlocks side. So, you know, and I think other than the kind of interesting thing that Ian is very aggressive in this and becomes kind of a action star and gets into all these yeah. fights and threatens people's lives, that's a little unusual. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just there. I'd say, you know, yeah, I, I'd probably <laughs> skip it other than the first episode. Yeah, uh, that's, that's reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so next up, and I keep saying this, but it is true of several of these Hart Nolan. Dr. Hughes. Next up is the chase. And once again, I'm not going to tell you anything and I'm really <laughs> curious to see what you think. And I'll, here's the one thing I'll tell you is that my opinion about this story is somewhat different than the, than the fan wisdom about this story. So we shall hmm. see, see what you think. Okay. Very good. <laughs> okay. We will see you next week. There's another thing I don't think I told you about, <laughs> but really interesting looking, although it's a, it's, it's re repeated as a very hard game. It's called a uh, cu cuphead. Have you heard of this? Oh, sure. Yeah. The 1930s animation style. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to watch a playthrough of it. I'm not sure I'd like to try a playthrough yeah. of it. <laughs> it is really hard Although it has to, you know, you can play each thing either regular or, or simple. Um. I'm trying regular when I started out. I'm, I'm holding off till mm. later, but it is amazing because what they did with the game. Now, apparently Netflix or something is putting out a, um, animated series of it. Um, yeah. And I, I read about that and apparently they sort of, uh, uh, cut corners on making right. it the 1930s style. They sort of lost. Yeah. The... Well, the reality was they kind of had to, and, you know, the thing was they spent like seven years doing the game. And when they did the game, all the animation is done the same way that 1930s animation was. So it's all hand-drawn, nah. on cells, et cetera. And they just couldn't afford, you know, the cost of that and the amount of time it would take um, yeah. is just astronomical now. So so they try to replicate it as much as they can. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it sounds, from what I read about it, it sounds like, aside from not using the same method of animation, they also... Uh, uh, the style isn't really as consistent with right. the, you well, know, the yeah, there's a, there's a podcast now, now it's called get played. It used to be called, how did this get played? But, um, and they, that's where I learned about the game and they were talking about the animated show versus the game and they did feel that the game was better. Um, so, and you know, I started it up and tried it. It was really hard right from the beginning, but it also <laughs> was amazingly, you know, every element sort of, it reminded me of fallout really where 
every UI element and everything was all part of the same milieu, right? So it all felt uh, mm, really consistent yeah. and it was interesting. It Extremely highly organic. reviewed. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've read a lot of good things about Cuphead. There was also um, something that might amuse you. Uh, if you do a search on uh, something like try maybe games journalist uh, fails Cuphead tutorial or something like that. It's a guy <laughs> who's like a, a professional games journalist you know and he, I, he couldn't figure out. What's and up. I bet I know exactly where it was because, yeah, uh, I had a hard time getting through the tutorial, yes. Because the deal, first of all, the tutorial is really well implemented in that um, it's like hand-drawn paper. So it's uh, with the instructions drawn on it. And then you're walking over the paper, you know, as the mm -hmm. animated character. And you're needing to do what the instructions say. Um, there's one point where you need to jump over uh, a barrier. And to do it, you need to put together a couple things you've been taught. You need to jump. And at the right point, you need to dash forward. Uh -huh. And... It doesn't necessarily make it clear you have to do that. And if you do it, the timing has to be right. And I guarantee that was where he got screwed up because <laughs> it took me a while. Yeah, I can see that. I would normally say kids today wouldn't know about that, but actually kids today are all into the vinyl records, which that's one case yeah. where I'm going to say, I think that's all bullshit. <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean, it is conceivable that, you know, a few times playing a fresh vinyl record might get you a warmer sound than digital mm -hmm. but after that it's scratched up and this and that just go with the digital kids <laughs> but i know well, it's cool uh, to, to be into it <laughs> yeah well I'll, I'll take the devil's advocate stance here and say that i i had the experience back when cds came out mm -hmm. of you know i still had a record player and mm -hmm. i remember thinking that some music seemed to have sort of a richer sound coming out of the <laughs> so you're record siding player. With the and that was, and that was before I had ever read that other people felt the same way. Yeah, yeah. Cause that was before the internet, of course. So, <laughs> so yeah. you're siding with the, well, yeah. I have to admit I have a bias, which is my partner back then when that whole, uh, transition was occurring between, you know, records and DVDs and such. Um, we had a fancy record player. My partner was very, uh, exacting about these things and mm -hmm. we could not play a record any side of a record without first taking out this brush and spraying this liquid on the record and brushing mm. off the record and i was just like <laughs> i just want to hear the other side of this album i don't want to spend here for five minutes doing this so you know my my experience may be coloring my view of this whole thing yeah understandable <laughs> you fool 